Good day to you all and welcome to this uh, Balfour Project event. I welcome more than 820 attendees who have registered to be with us today. That's a tribute to the quality of our speakers and the importance of our chosen theme. Because Jerusalem is the title of our day is Jerusalem from past divisions to a shared future, question mark. And that question mark is very uh, important. The, I spent three years in Jerusalem, um, spiritually uplifting, politically headbanging. The Balfour Project comes at this issue from an equal rights perspective and with an eye to British responsibility to work for equal rights, which our government historically has not always done. To put it diplomatically, I'm an ex-diplomat. The questions we ask today are, can we establish the facts? of the situation and highlight them. Historical, legal, religious, actual. Second, can we explore the prospects for positive change inclusively or more of the same? When more of the same means entrenching inequality. Third, what should Britain and others say and do to advance equal rights and peaceful coexistence? By Britain, what do I mean? Government, parliament, civil society, all of us. Not acting alone, but acting. And doing so in concert with like-minded people elsewhere in Europe, in the United States, in Israel, and in Palestine. But this charity's work begins at home, raising awareness here and advocating steps towards equal rights there. In so many ways, Jerusalem is the heart of the matter. And that is not to neglect Gaza, the theme of our two conferences in Scotland in 2019 and the West Bank. Today, our speakers will seek to put Jerusalem back on the table. For there will be no solution to this conflict without an inclusive solution on Jerusalem sharing the future. We seek the peace of Jerusalem. Now, if I may, some guidance on how the day will run. Diana Safier, our excellent Balfour Project Programs Coordinator, and her colleague Edith Perman will run the day. With Edith, the chat box 
for your incredible informative conference brochure. I commend, it's available on our website, will manage the transitions between the sessions. There will be a five minute break between each session and a break for lunch. If you have a question, write it in the chat box. Ian Black will put questions and themes to a panel at 5.20 UK time this evening. We can't answer all questions, but Ian will try to express what's on your minds. Just to repeat, the Q&A session will be at 5.20 UK time. It will not happen after each individual session. Instead, there will be discussion between the panelists. Here's an important fact. A full video recording of our day together will be on the Balfour Project website within 24 hours. We would love you to spend your day in our good company for the next few hours. But if you can't, uh, the full recording will be available by tomorrow. And now it's my honor to introduce a, a short video message from His Royal Highness Prince Hassan bin Talal, a man who cares deeply about Jerusalem. Here is his message to us. Dear friends of Jerusalem, I commend the Balfour Project for convening this timely and important conference with its impressive array of speakers, friends of Jerusalem all. It was Benjamin Disraeli, a Sephardic Jew who converted to Anglicanism and reputedly died a Roman Catholic, who gave us one of the most evocative descriptions of old Jerusalem when he visited in the early years of the 19th century. What need, he said, of cascade and of cataract, the deep green turf, the foliage of the fairest trees, the impenetrable forest, the abounding river, mountains of glaciered crest, all sights and sounds of material loveliness. They would not be observed as the eyes seized on Calvary and Sion, the gates of Bethlehem and Damascus, the hill of Titus, the mosque of Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the tomb of Christ. The view of Jerusalem is the history of the world. It is more. It is the uh, history of earth and heaven. It is a history that is also deeply entwined with that of my own family. As Sharif of Mecca and King of Hejaz, my great-grandfather, Sharif Hussein, presided over the principal routes of pilgrimage. Respect for each other's holy places was ingrained in the tradition of hospitality and watering and sanctuary. This hereditary duty directly links Mecca with the Esplanade, the glorious Esplanade, and the holy sites. I want to say that leaping forward for the sake of brevity, Jerusalem, the city, may have been holy to the three great monotheistic religions simultaneously for 13 centuries, but tragically, despite long periods during which Jerusalemites lived peacefully with their neighbors, immigrants of many nationalities 
and pilgrims, as can be seen in Félix Bonfils' early photographs of the inhabitants side by side, without concern for difference in religion, sect, or origin, this has not proved a consolidating factor. On the contrary, at times it has exacerbated political differences. Even now, the holiness of the city does not ensure an agreed solution for its future. Only the legal arguments offer a dispassionate and neutral route on, uh, out of the labyrinth, a counterbalance to the partisan nature of the political polemic and the dogmatic quality of so much of the religious debate. If we should never forget Jerusalem's religious and heritage status, and I recall the wonderful bird's eye view of Jerusalem highlighting its global significance by the Flemish painter, engraver, and mapmaker Franz Hogenberg in 1575, including mosque, church, and synagogue, we should also bear in mind that the city is also a temporal entity inhabited by real human beings whose basic human dignity has already been relentlessly eroded by politics. Unfortunately, the situation has been deteriorating rapidly in recent times. May I conclude these uh, few remarks by saying that I have been a lifelong friend of the United Kingdom. I deeply admire its fundamental values and principles, including the upholding of the rule of law. Speaking as a friend, I should add that though British interest in Jerusalem has not always translated into attention to the well-being and equal treatment of all Jerusalem's residents. Today, owing to exclusivist polities, the state of the city concerns us all with its rich social fabric, a city that means so much to the peoples of the Abrahamic faith and to the whole world. Through this message of goodwill, of mutual respect and peaceful coexistence, I would like to speak above all to the online audience and those who will follow these proceedings, to those concerned British people who worry about current negative trends and can make their voices heard in calls to those responsible for a change of direction before it is too late. Thank you. Can I thank His Royal Highness for uh, that intervention, that heartfelt intervention in which he mentioned so many things, including the legal status of the city, which we will touch upon in our second session. May I now uh, hand over to my friend and colleague, Andrew Whitley, 
a fellow trustee of the Balfour Project and member of our executive committee who will take us through the first session of the day on the history of the city and of the conflict. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Vincent, and thanks to everyone for joining this conference today. It's my honor to be the chair of this first session on history and what a history it is. Anyone who has been to Jerusalem, and I have the privilege of living there for seven years, knows what a wonderful history it is and how we cannot escape that, that history. Going back to the first and second temples to the city of David, to the times of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and resurrection, and of course, to the... Hello? We can hear you, Andrew, carry on. Thank you, I'm sorry, I thought I, I had, there was a technical problem there. So um, I simply want to be able to set the scene here today to say that, um, History is an inescapable subject in Jerusalem, but it's one which is so contentious that we need expert guides to talk us through it. Today, we shall be focusing on the modern era of Jerusalem from the late Ottoman period through to the mandate period and up to today. And to guide us on this journey, we have four distinguished historians and international relations experts deeply familiar with the city and with the broader Arab-Israeli conflict. Before introducing them, I would like to make two practical points. The first one Vincent has already mentioned, but it bears repeating, is that there will be no Q&A at the end of this session. Instead, please put your questions in the chat box and we'll try to tackle them at the end. Secondly, to inform everyone online that uh, we are not, of course, charging you for this conference, but we would much appreciate any contributions that you're able to make to the running of the Balfour Project, which is a charity and depends largely on volunteers. Our speakers today in the, are going to be in this order. We will begin with um, the distinguished uh, professor, uh, Emeritus Professor of International Relations, Avi Schleim from Oxford. Um, he will give us the keynote speech. Uh, after him, we will have Professor Salim Tamari, editor of the Jerusalem Quarterly from Birzeit University, and he will talk about the late Ottoman and early mandate period. Menachem Klein, Professor Menachem Klein of Bar-Ilan University, will then take over and give us a presentation on the mandate period and the period that he has written about so vividly in his books on the city. And then finally, Mick Dumper, who will speak to us. He is a professor in Middle East politics at Exeter and someone deeply familiar with plans to be able to share the city. So with no further ado, let me turn the floor over to Avi Schlein. Thank you.
Thank you, Andrew. And it is wonderful to see so many of you attending this conference online. The real experts on Jerusalem are the three panelists who are going to follow me. My task, as I understand it, is to put the Jerusalem issue in the much broader context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict was made in Britain, and the original scene was the Balfour Declaration. In 1917, the Arabs constituted 90% of the population of Palestine. The Jews constituted 10% and they owned only 2% of the land. And yet Britain chose to award national rights to the Jewish minority and to deny it to the Arab majority. So this was a classic colonial document. The Balfour Declaration enabled the Zionists to embark on the systematic takeover of Palestine, a protest which is still ongoing today. I can summarize the history of the British mandate in Palestine by saying that Britain stole Palestine from the Palestinians and gave it to the Zionists. And when the Arab revolt broke out in 1936, it was the British army which repressed the revolt, which suppressed the revolt with the utmost brutality. The cornerstone of the British mandate for Palestine was that there would be no representative institutions, no democracy until the Jews became the majority. The, the Palestine mandate was unique. All the other mandates called on the mandatory power to prepare the country for self-government. The Palestine mandate, which incorporated the Balfour Declaration, called on Britain to prepare Palestine to be the country to be governed eventually by Jews from all over the world. Jerusalem is the heart and the core of this conflict. The reason for this is obvious. It is of the utmost importance to all three monotheistic religions. But it is of particularly deep spiritual, re religious, symbolic, um, and political importance to Jews and Arabs. One solution to this problem is internationalization to make Jerusalem an international city. In 1947, the United Nations voted 
for the partition of the British mandate into two states, one Jewish, one Arab. But Jerusalem was to be a separate international enclave, a separate, uh, a corpus separatum, but it was not to be. A war broke out and the war degenerated into a general land grab. The losers in this war were the Palestinians and the winners were the Israelis who extended the territory well beyond the UN partition lines and Jordan, which captured and later annexed the West Bank, including the old city of Jerusalem to its kingdom. Jerusalem was divided uh, down the middle uh, between the two belligerents. Israel kept West Jerusalem and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan kept East Jerusalem. And this was the status quo until June 1967. Immediately after um, the Six Day War, Israel annexed Jerusalem. The first thing to say is that the Israeli annexation of Jerusalem was illegal and it remains illegal today. Yet the Israeli mantra all along has been that Jerusalem is uh, the unified eternal capital of the Jewish people. Israel has a record of um, extreme diplomatic intransigence in all the issues um, in this conflict, but it has been especially intransigent when it came to Jerusalem. In 1993, Israel and the PLO signed the Oslo Accord. This was a historic accord because it was the first agreement between the two principal sides to the conflict. But the Oslo Accord did not address the issue of Jerusalem or indeed any other of the what are called permanent status issues. The other permanent status issues are, are the right of return of the 1948 refugees, the borders of the Palestinian entity, the future of the Jewish settlements on occupied Palestinian territory, and last but not least, the future of Jerusalem. The Oslo peace process failed. There are many reasons for its failure, but the central reason, the most fundamental reason, is that Israel reneged on its side of the deal. Israel did not use the Oslo Accord to end the occupation, but to repackage the occupation. All the final status issues were put at the table on the table at the Camp David summit in July 2000. But there were two particularly sensitive issues, the right of return of the Palestinian refugees and Jerusalem. In the end, the conference failed and the sticking issue at that conference 
was the issue of Jerusalem. There could be no agreement, no agreement was reached on what to do with Jerusalem because Israel was intransigent. One more attempt was made to resolve uh, the, the conflict by President Clinton in December 2000, one month before he left the White, Office, the White House. Clinton convened the two delegations and presented to them what he modestly called the Clinton parameters. These parameters envisage an independent Palestinian state on the West Bank, uh, on the whole of the Gaza Strip, and 94 to 96% of the West Bank with a capital city in East Jerusalem. The principle applied to Jerusalem was that which is Jewish will be like the Jewish quarter would be under um, would be under Israeli sovereignty, and that which is Muslim will be under Palestinian sovereignty. But the Clinton Clinton parameters were not accepted, and they left office with him. And yet, in historical perspective, this was the real deal of the century. This was the best blueprint we have for a two-state solution. President Trump, of course, has got his own, what he calls pretentiously, uh, with absurd and ridiculous hype, the deal of the century. Before announcing the deal of the century, Trump had already recognized the whole of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Uh, his peace plan was, of course, not a peace plan at all. Uh, it um, was a free pass for Israel to annex about a third of the West Bank. So um, the Palestinians rejected it angrily and um, and that was the end of, um, of um, Trump's deal of the century. Yet Trump's plan represents a major American retreat from the idea of a two-state solution to the conflict. And the two-state solution has gathered the broadest possible international consensus, which included most of the Arab states. The Arab states, back in 2002, at the Beirut summit of the Arab League, had launched their own peace initiative, the Saudi plan, which became the um, Arab Peace Initiative. The Arab Peace Initiative offered Israel um, peace and normalization with all 22 members of the Arab League in return 
for an end of occupation and the emergence of a, a Palestinian state on the West Bank and Gaza with a capital city on East in East Jerusalem. But Israel never responded to the Arab peace initiative. This too deserved the title of the deal of the century. Today, it is fashionable to say that the two-state solution is dead. I would go much further. I would say that the two-state solution was never born. I say this because at no time since 1967 was Israel serious about allowing an independent Palestinian state. And at no point has America really pushed Israel to agree to a, to, to a Palestinian state. So what is the solution now? I think that the best solution would be one democratic state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights for all its citizens. So Vincent is probably going to reprimand me later on for recommending the one state solution because the Balfour project as a whole is still wedded to the two state solution. But we have to face reality. And the reality is that Israel, by its constant expansion of settlements, uh, has killed the possibility of a viable Palestinian state. You may say one state, one binational state with equal rights for all its citizens is pie in the sky. So I refer you to the book by Menachem Klein, Common Lives, Jews and Arabs in Jerusalem, Jaffa, and Hebron. His book shows quite clearly that peaceful coexistence between Jews and Arabs um, in Jerusalem was possible in the past. And if it was possible in the past, it should be possible in the present and in the future. So I conclude, as a historian of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as somebody who always supported the two-state solution in the past, I have now reached the uh, conclusion that the only just solution to this conflict is one democratic state. And I recommend this to all the listeners not just as a practical solution to the Jerusalem problem, but as a noble vision. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Avi. That was uh, a really profound point that you ended on. And speaking for myself, I think that I would agree with you that that is the right way to proceed, whether it is practical I'm not sure, but um, certainly it is the direction of travel that I think many believe is the right way to go. I'm not certain yet whether um, Salim Tamari has been able to join us. Um, he was having some technical difficulties, I believe. So we might move quickly 
to Menachem, who you have already referenced. So perhaps, um, Diana, if you could uh, bring in Menachem Klein. Good morning, do you hear me? Yes, we, we hear you well, Menachem, oh, so please continue. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I, I would like to, to start with uh, two um, historical shifts um, that happened in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, Greater Jerusalem, I mean, uh, the district, Ottoman district of Jerusalem in the late 19th century. First, uh, Jerusalemites started, uh, Jerusalem started to expand outside the walls. Jerusalemites lived the, uh, lived the uh, walled city and they created uh, a modern city before World War I and also afterwards. And second, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, a local identity emerged among the Jerusalemites. A local patriotism of belonging to the city and seeing the, uh, the, their, uh, their citizens or the uh, Jews and the Jews and Arabs saw their uh, neighbors not as Jews versus Arabs versus Christians, but as Jerusalemites, people that share the same land they spoke the same language in most cases Arabic. Um, even Ashkenazi Jews spoke Arabic and, and they have shared interest and the shared identity within the Ottoman, within the Ottoman Empire. They did not revolt against the Ottoman Empire, but they, they, they had, they preserved their own identity as Jerusalemites. And uh, this is a big shift uh, uh, towards modernity by both Jews and Arabs, and both of them developed Jerusalem and moved it to, to become a, a very modern city in the 20th century, in the early 20th century. Now, which means that Jerusalem became a modern city, not, not only a holy place, so the way that the Jerusalemites saw their own place was not just religion or a holy place, sacred uh, space, but also a modern city. Uh, and, uh, and the city that people lived in, connected to the West, uh, connected to the region. There were no borders between Jerusalem Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, even Iraq uh, or Turkey, and, uh, and not only a place that, that two rivals, religions or uh, empires fight over ruling it. Now, it's, it, I, it is important to, to, uh, to bear in mind that the mainstream Zionists did not see Jerusalem as a major place. For the mainstream Zionism, Jerusalem was not important. They identified Jerusalem as a holy place, and, and, but, but, uh, but the, uh, the Zionists 
uh, as a secular movement, as a nas secular national movement, did not consider Jerusalem as a, as a center. Um, so they neglected Jerusalem in their imagination. It was identified with the ultra-Orthodox that they revolt against, with the exile, with the old Jews, and we want to, to establish a, the, 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 the new Jew. Um, so at the end of the, 19, uh, the early 20th century, we, we see two, the, the establishment of two national movements. Each national movement was ethno-exclusive national movement, wanting to rule exclusively the area. And here comes uh, come the Balfour Declaration. If we look back from today discourse of one state versus two state solution, we can say that the Balfour Declaration is in favor of one state. Of, it, of course, it is a Jewish state. One state solution, this was the Balfour uh, Declaration solution, the, the, the and the cooperation between the Zionist movement and, and, and the British uh, colonialism. Jewish hegemony, no Palestinians, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the local people were classified as Muslims or Christians uh, only. No local identity. The, uh, the, the uh, Balfour Architects did not acknowledge the local identity of, uh, of the people living on, uh, on the place. The two, the two national movements aimed to undermine this, uh, this identity. They wanted to replace this identity with their exclusive agenda, ethno-exclusive agenda. Did they succeed if we look back uh, from today or from 48, 1948 war? They succeeded in destroying the old order, definitely, but they could not achieve what each of them wanted, an exclusive new order, national rule, either Palestinian or uh, uh, or Jewish. So at the end, what happened is that the Brits in 1937 suggested the partition plan. And the different version became uh, recognized uh, by the UN internationally and accepted internationally in 1947. So the vision of Palestine, to a kind of a two-state solution, uh, was accepted in '47 uh, against the one-state uh, Jewish hegemony of the uh, of the Balfour Statement. Now, if we look back, go back to the from the uh, national movements, the national perspective to the to the city of Jerusalem. The lives under the British mandate, the life in, in Jerusalem was managed in two levels. At the popular level, the two people, the two nations cohabited 
and uh, everyday life went normal. <clears throat> Sometimes there were clashes in uh, 19, 1920, 29, <clears throat> but shortly afterwards, they, they lived together in the same place, uh, encounter, interact. There were mixed marriage and uh, they met each other in, in the public space and so on up to 45, 40, 48, up to the, the, the war. However, in the, in the municipality, in the, in the institutions and the municipal institutions and nationwide, there was a, an escalating clashes, uh, a clash between the two national movements. So in Jerusalem, because of, of the, the, the centrality that the Jerusalem was the center of the British administration and the, uh, the, uh, the city council that the Brits artificially uh, wanted to, to keep a balance between the two national movements, maintain as an artificial balance between Jews and Arabs in the city hall and failed. The, the city hall was paralyzed. It was a platform of clashes between the Zionists and the Palestinians. Regardless, it was the Khalidi or Nashashibi um, and the Husseini trying to undermine both of, of these uh, clans. And the, of course, the, 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 the Jews, uh, um, the, the Jewish members of the, uh, of the city hall. So the city suffered from a very hot uh, a, a, a clash in the city hall, in the institutions, but down on in the streets, they, they managed. It shows that the Jerusalemites are more, let's say, sophisticated or wise than their leaders. And it's true also up to date I, I think anyone who follows what's going on on the ground in the city see that, uh, that the, the conflict is not elsewhere. And there are many, many areas even today that uh, Jews and Arabs cooperate, not only against COVID-19, but also on a daily life. So this kind of uh, difference between the national conflict and, and, and lives on, on the ground, uh, it, it is relevant also uh, up, up to date. Finally, <clears throat> the, uh, Jerusalem was divided between Jordan and, uh, and Israel in, in 48, based on the understanding, and thank you Avi for, for bringing, to, to teaching us from your first book, Collusion Over uh, uh, the Jordan, uh, uh, due to the understanding between um, Zionist leadership, Ben-Gurion and, and, uh, and Israel and, and Jordan, Jerusalem was divided bet between, uh, between uh, Jordan and, and Israel in uh, 48, in 48 war. This division ended in, of course, in 67. And since then, Israel occupies Jordanian Jerusalem, Palestinian, Palestinian Jerusalem, but still de facto on, uh, on the ground, there are many, many areas that are 
divided the, the, between Jews, uh, 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 Jews and, and, uh, and Arabs, or Israel actually discriminates um, the uh, Arab parts of, uh, of Jerusalem. Can, can we go back to the two states or two cities solution? It's in my view, and perhaps I open it for uh, a further debate, it's impossible to build a Berlin wall or a, a, a kind of a, a wall of total separation between Jewish neighborhoods and the Palestinian neighborhoods. Uh, in under any circumstances, there must be a kind of what I call confederational arrangements between um, the, the Israeli entity and the Palestinian entity living, sharing the same urban, urban space. So it is, of course, it, it is possible today based on uh, you know, following what was possible um, late 19th century, early 20th century with all the changes that happened in between the two, uh, the two periods. But still, we have local identity as Jerusalemites that push the two, the Jews and the Palestinians, the two sides, to uh, cooperate and share the same space. Okay, thank you very much. Andrew, you're muted. Andrew, you're still muted. Andrew, it might help if you press the space bar that might unmute you while you talk. Andrew, would you like me to ask um, Mick to um, to move ahead and carry on? Mick Thumper, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Thank, right. you. Thank you. Sorry, technical yeah. difficulties. All right, carry on. Bye. Um, good morning, everyone, and good morning to my fellow panelists and uh, to all of you who have, who have turned up for this um, session. Um, I'm. As we haven't yet heard from Salim, I'm not sure how long we've got to the end of the panel. Um, I think we're due to finish at 11.20, and I don't know if you want me to keep some time to have uh, Salim in, or sh shall I extend my presentation a little bit longer? Andrew, if you can hear me, can you just put a thumbs up or, or down? Thumbs up? Okay. So I, do I carry on? Okay. Yes, please. All right. Okay. Um, so my my little uh, little presentation will really bring to a close this historical section. Um, 
uh, uh, but it right bring it right up to the present day but it also obviously links to the past because uh when you're talking about Jerusalem, you can never get away from the, the historical legacy of, of the city. I'm briefly going to concentrate on the holy sites as an example of some of the contentious contemporary issues. I know later on in the day you'll be having Danny Zeidemann giving a much fuller exposition. Um, and I'm going to focus here perhaps on, on, on the role of the, the holy sites and some of the negotiations. And, uh, the, and the, the search for a peaceful resolution. Um, in this way, I, I, I'm trying to stick close to the theme of the conference, but also to provide a kind of bridge to the sessions later on in the day. Now I'll try and share you with you my screen. It's always a bit tricky, this bit. I think this is the one. Um, Nick, you've got something um, perhaps jiggling. It's making a... A, a tapping sound? I don't know. If... No, that's not me. It's silence here. All right. Okay. I'm in the middle of Devon. There's not a sound. <laughs> Is it a wood, woodpecker or something? All right. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> so I just want to um, just show some some maps uh, to give you an idea of what we're talking about. If we start sort of from 48, the period that Menachem was talking about, through to 67, you can see here the green line. Uh, the old city in the middle, and these are the, the yellow areas are the areas of Palestinian residents. You move on a little bit, you'll see in 67, um, a new border <coughs> of Jerusalem was created, which uh, acquired or <coughs> annexed certain parts of the West Bank and made that part of the greater J Jerusalem. And then the, uh, over the following 60 <coughs> odd years, you had a whole series of uh, Israeli settlements, these blue um, blocks being uh, implanted on the other side. <clears throat> and you can see kind of the huge demographic changes that have taken place. And in this map, you should be able to see uh, the proposed wall or the wall in, in existence and some of the extensions to the wall uh, that, are, that are planned. So Jerusalem is going undergoing dr dramatic changes and there's lots of issues, both on, on about demography, about the, the, the scale of the new borders, the direction of them, the kind of governance um, <coughs> over the city, and to what extent are, is the international community going to be involved in its future. I can't cover all of these issues. Um, I teach a course on Jerusalem and it takes weeks, so um, I in 10 minutes I can't recover really them all now. So I'm just going to quickly look at the holy places and the old city and refer to a number of the uh, discussions around their future. As you all know, and Menachem and Avi have spoken, um, <clears throat> Jerusalem's a center for, um, uh, for, for Islam, Christianity and Judaism. And here we have the kind of well-known pictures of uh, some sites. There are over 300 sites in the old city alone. That's probably uh, roughly every four meters a holy site. This is chock-a-block with different from prayer rooms to uh, churches to mosques to seminaries to <coughs> synagogues. And sometimes they're right next to each other, sometimes on top of each other, sometimes they're intertwined with each other. And you can imagine even in the happiest of circumstances how difficult it is to um, keep a kind of a, a, a harmonious interaction between them. And these sites also provide communities 
uh, with a very strong sense of their, their, their territorial presence and, and reinforces sort of the ethnic divisions between, between them. And it's also important to remember these sites um, are controlled by clergy who are quite powerful and who have international connections. And so whatever goes on in Jerusalem immediately kind of resonates around, around the world. There's a lot of uh, media interest straight away. <clears throat> it's, a, it's, a, it's a city in the spotlight all the time. Um, the key focus of many, much of the tension has been in the, the area known as the Temple Mount or the uh, Haram Sharif, which is where you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, the Neil Al-Mavrani Prayer Hall, uh, which is underneath this uh, paving area here, um, the Golden Gate, which has uh, more recently become a, an issue. Um, somewhere along here is where the presumed place of um, the Holy of Holies from the ancient uh, biblical period. You have the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall down here, and then a tunnel that runs along the edge of the, <coughs> the Haram Sharif, known as the Western Wall Tunnel, and, and which has now become part of a, a national shrine <coughs> to, <coughs> in Israel. So this is kind of the, the epicenter of a lot of the tension, but we shouldn't really forget all around Jerusalem, uh, uh, the old city, there are other sites which are quite well known, and I, I can't go through all of them, and I'm sure Danny Z uh, Zeidemann will give you much more detail um, than me. But I just mentioned here the Mamilla Cemetery and the Mount Zion <coughs> Daoudi complex, as well as the Jewish cemetery uh, here on the other side. Now, when it comes to peace plans, <coughs> what we're really, there's more or less four options. Um, and, and you can divide them into sort of four groups. If this is the hard border between Israel and Palestine, and I'm talking about peace plan, plans around Jerusalem, one set of options is that Israel ha has held control of the old city, and so the border goes to the east of, uh, of the old city. The opposite option to that is that Palestine has control of the old city and the border goes to the, the west of the old city. Now, these two are obviously in, uh, not acceptable to either side, but that's where much of the debate is taken. What we have here in these two, the blower options here, is where there is a zone created around the old city, which is in some senses shared or has a third party looking after it for a temporary period until a resolution is, um, <coughs> is, is arrived at. Or you have a version of this, which is, um, is that the, there's an open border there's a, and some sort of com compromise over the kind of the, the main areas around functional issues and, um, and security, but there's no sort of uh, clear division of, of sovereignty. And these are kind of the more or less the four options that most of the Jerusalem plans fall in, into. In the uh, year 2000, when Clinton hosted the Camp David uh, discussions, um, the Israeli proposal was, was more or less this, that if this is the old city, it would push the border way to the, the east, and these areas would become part of uh, Palestinian Jerusalem. And uh, this was obviously in the end uh, un unacceptable and it was the main reason which the Camp David proposed uh, negotiations broke down. 
what I want to look at is two uh, initiatives that try to find a way around this uh, impasse. And in a way, I, I think I feel I'm speaking slightly out of turn here because Menachem Klein uh, has had much more direct experience uh, as a participant in these discussions than I have. I was more involved in the, in the Josie one, uh, but uh, Nanakim has um, had experience on both of those. Um, so if I look at the Jerusalem City Initiative, there is a website there, and there is also, if you can see um, this book, it's recently came out la last year, which is a detailed description of how the negotiations went. And it was initiated by um, a group of former Canadian diplomats and academics. And they decided that the old city where the holy places were, uh, or the key holy places, was the nut that had to be cracked. They had to sort that one out. And they felt that what, they would, what was important, if you could sort out the old city and how that was going to be governed, other things would fall into place much more easily. And they went for something called the, an international regime that would be backed by a UN Security Council resolution. The whole question of sovereignty was put to one side. Whether it belonged to the Israelis or the Palestinians, they thought would not be an issue, uh, should not be discussed at that point. The regime they suggested should last for about 10 years, which is incidentally very similar to the partition plan proposal <coughs> 47. Uh, should, and then there should be a review and perhaps in elections after, after 10 years. The, the, the proposals in this initiative focus a lot on security and safety and access to the holy sites. And there was a sort of what I, uh, I was sort of uh, asked to develop some of these ideas. And um, we came up with a sort of a four pillar model. model. There'd be an old city administration, with a holy sites police unit, which would be international and comprising uh, uh, both uh, parties. There'll be an inter-religious council and there'll be specialized working groups on archeology, span on land disputes <coughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and, and justice. But uh, that, um, those, that would be kind of the basic structure. Now there were problems about this um, and one of them was that uh, the, the, the suspension of sovereignty uh, was a big issue because, as we all know in, in, in international relations, when both parties accept something, even on a temporary basis, that becomes the new status quo. And the thought of suspending sovereignty uh, was very unpalatable to the Palestinians who wanted at least some recognition that if they didn't attain sovereignty, it was still there to be discussed. <clears throat> And also um, there was a, a sense in which the old city would be detached from its hinterland. It would be create another mini municipality within the, the, the bigger um, a city. Uh, and, and there would be checkpoints as you go in and out of, of the old city, which would uh, uh, fragment the, the city even, <coughs> even more. Elements of the uh, Josie initiative have been discussed at very high level. They were part of the material that, that was submitted to the uh, um, participants of the Annapolis uh, conference um, in 2007. And it still remains on the table as one of the sort of few initiative uh, proposals which have tried to spell out the consequences of a, uh, a compromise over the governance of the ho holy sites.
The other um, initiative was called the Geneva Initiative, launched in 2003. It didn't have a particular official status, but Palestinian and Israeli figures in both Camp David and Tarba were very involved uh, in, in these uh, on a personal capacity, and it reflected kind of the, the, the thinking at that time. And the areas of agreement would be that there were two capitals and two municipalities, there'd be a coordination committee, committee between them, there would be also a special regime for the, for the old city, uh, very similar to the, uh, the Josie ideas, um, and there'd be Palestinian sovereignty over Haram sharif In exchange, Palestinians would exceed sovereignty to the Jewish quarter and uh, many of the Israeli settlements. Um, the Geneva Initiative again is still out there. There's still um, at time to time there's people working on some elements of it uh, to try and reconcile some of the differences. The main problem is that it really reflected the balance of power at the time. And um, Palestinians who had um, uh, welcomed it started to pull away from it because they felt that it had too much uh, entrenched the, the Israeli dominance. It also had the problem of fragmenting the city. And you can see from this <coughs> map here, this would have been the borders trying to incorporate the Israeli settlements. Uh, so you have these sort of uh, corridors, <coughs> which is really and tunnels and uh, bypasses, which was really a security um, uh, expert's nightmare. And um, the question of dividing up the old city into a Palestinian area and, and uh, uh, um, Israeli area was quite unacceptable to the Palestinians at that time. So, when I kind of look at some of these peace plans and take these two uh, as an example, I try and pick out what is what is agreed and what needs still to work on. And this is a very rough, quite cosmetic list here. Uh, it's much more nuanced than this, but I just wanted to give you a, a, a snapshot to some of where we are in terms of the discussions or where we have been. At the moment, all the discussions are suspended. So there's more or less an agreement that there would be some sort of dual municipal structure and that there would be special arrangements for the old city and the holy places to be still you know clarified but that would that's still more or less a people see that as the direction of travel there would be some third party some international role for verification for providing security and there might be some land swaps what isn't sorted is the sovereignty of the old city over the western uh, uh, in the old city over the western wall and the Haram Sharif, and how the different areas of the, the city link up together, what sort of what they call contiguity mechanisms, <clears throat> do they have borders or, uh, or uh, um, tunnels or uh, by, special by, bypasses and bridges, and the exact line of the <clears throat> municipal borders is still to be decided. Some people prefer a small border, others say no let's have a larger one because then there'd be much more scope for the city to have a, uh, its own kind of legal and administrative system. And the issue of- Sorry to, to interrupt you, but um, Salim Tamari has been able to join us now, and I'd like to give him a little bit of time before we, we close so that we can have yeah. a, a short discussion. So if you could kindly start wrapping up. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, there's, and there's two other elements is to what extent would the Palestinian security services be involved in the security of the area and what, ha what happens to Palestinian property in West Jerusalem in this scenario? I won't go into this because I'm sure you'll have our chances to speak, but obviously this is a bit of a spanner in the works and uh, there are a number of issues around what uh, the US has done and it'll be very interesting to see if Biden reverses any of these um, uh, 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 steps taken by the, by the Trump administration. All to say, just to say that it's not at all clear what the US recognition of Jerusalem as the, <coughs> as the capital of Israel actually means in practice and on the ground. There's lots of uh, procedural problems that diplomats are, are, um, are working with. I'll stop here and uh, thank you very much, Andrew. Nice to see Menachem and Abby again and uh, hello to all the participants. Bye. Thank you very, thank you very much indeed, Mick. I mean that was really authoritative. Um, I'm glad to say that Salim has now been able to join us, and so Salim, if you could kindly unmute yourself, um, we'll give you the floor now. Oh. Yep, we, we we hear you now. Thanks, Salim. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I think uh, we were confused by the summertime. I'm I have uh, designed to do it uh, an hour from now, but we might as well go ahead. Uh, do you have my uh, PowerPoint, or should I do it from here? I think best for you to do it from from there. Um, I, I think it's too much technology, so I'll just uh, read from my uh, presentation. Is that okay? Yes, yes, please go ahead. Okay, I uh, intend to discuss the centrality of Jerusalem in the late Ottoman period and the way the idea of a Palestine entity evolved in reaction to the events following the Egyptian campaign in Syria, in which uh, the province, the separation of Syria from the Ottoman Empire elicited a number of reactions, one of which was the opening up of Jerusalem for substantial presence by the European powers, especially the Germans, the Russians, the British and the French. Uh, with, a, with a considerable amount of uh, educational institutions and healthcare uh, by the Vatican and the Catholic forces. Um, during this period, uh, Jerusalem it became a separate autonomous province called Mutasarriflik of Quds Sharif or Holy Jerusalem in the Ottoman Empire. And it also led to a substantial amount uh, of competition for, uh, in which the various European consulates and European missions began to establish their presence uh, in a way that challenged Ottoman rule. Uh, the presentation I had prepared, which I'm unable to share with you here, it discusses how 
this uh, correspondence between a greater Jerusalem entity and the Ottoman definition of Philistine in Syria uh, became more or less synonymous. And we can trace it very much in the cartography and the travel literature of the period. There are two items which interest in this vision. One is the a great preponderance of literature which is known as Fada'il al-Quds or the vices, the, the virtues of Jerusalem in Arab and Islamic, including Turkish Islamic, uh, celebration of the importance of Jerusalem as part of travel to the Holy Land. And uh, the, there's a profuse literature going back to the 16th century, but it became very preponderant in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Uh, the Ottoman mapping of Syria was part of the campaign in which the naval expeditions of the Ottoman Empire, beginning with Perry Raisi in the 16th century and Katib Sharabi in the 17th century, uh, created uh, commercial and military mapping of Syria, as well as the rest of the Mediterranean, for the purposes of asserting uh, Ottoman naval ascendancy. The part of which, which deals with Jerusalem and Palestine is significant because beginning with Perry Raisi in the late 16th century, we see a visually dramatic, uh, commercially useful, and militarily instrumental uh, allocations of boundaries and areas of urban expansion in Ottoman mapping. For the first time, we see urban maps of major provincial cities. And of course, Jerusalem was part of it. Um, I, in my intended uh, PowerPoint, I show the evolution of the growth of the Jerusalem district of the province of Jerusalem in an increasingly sophisticated way uh, in these mappings going back to the late 16th century, early 17th century, and then uh, joined by the Khedeval mapping services. Of course, uh, Egypt was then a nominally a, an Ottoman province and Egyptian Khedeval cartography was seen as part of the Ottoman cartography, although of course Egyptian interest after Muhammad Ali's campaign became distinct and separate and competitive. So the net result of these competing interests over Jerusalem uh, first by the European powers after the Egyptian campaign, and second by the um, Ottoman administration in response to these European claims over the holy places, redefined what Jerusalem was and evolved a kind of Jerusalem entity which reached a zenith by two events. The first was the establishment of a, a autonomous Jerusalem uh, province in the 1870s. And this was one of the few autonomous provinces in 
the Ottoman region, the other one being in the Arab world, uh, the Mutasarrafi of Jabal Lubnan. And second, the uh, creation in, in 1872 of three different Sanjaks, which uh, joined together the what became later known as the Palestinian districts of Akka, Nablus, and Jerusalem. That is the province of Jerusalem was joined with the Sanjak of Akka and Nablus to form one single unit, which was called the province of Jerusalem district. And uh, European powers called it the Ottoman region of Palestine. The word Palestine was used by European powers. And in, in, uh, in Istanbul, both the words Philistine and, uh, and uh, uh, Qudus Sharif were used for the creation of this separate unit corresponding to the autonomous zone of Mount Lebanon. Uh, this district or three Sanjaks combined into one making one single Palestinian province under the wilaya of Suraya Pasha, who was the governor of Aleppo and then the governor of uh, Syria, now became the governor of Palestine, did not last long. It lasted very briefly, maybe for a year and a half, before the uh, redistricting of the area joined the northern part of Palestine to Beirut Vilaya, and the central part remained as the district of Palestine. What is significant in all of this is that in Ottoman cartography and Ottoman administrative usages, uh, Palestine was Jerusalem, Jerusalem was Palestine, meaning that the head of the province, which had port city of Jaffa and the city of Jerusalem in it, were one single province that were marked as Philistine in Ottoman cartography. And that remained the condition until the coming of the First World War. During the war, uh, we have very interesting development in which uh, Ottoman Turkish administrative boundaries shifted again with the creation of one single province uh, extending from Sur in southern Lebanon to Rafah in the south uh, in uh, military cartography, uh, which is enunciated in a very important document which was a manual for military use called Philistine Resalacy. And it was authored, uh, uh, according to my investigation, by uh, uh, Mohammed Bahjat and uh, uh, by Mohammed Bahjat, the cartographer and ethnographer. And that corresponded to a new entity called Palestine. It's clearly marked as Philistine, and the capital of that. Uh, region was the city of Jerusalem. So this progression from a marginal physical administrative boundaries of a physical of the pilgrimage center known as Jerusalem and enunciated and elaborated in the literature known as Fada'il al-Quds 
now evolved in competition with the claims of the European powers, leading later, of course, to uh, Tsarist, uh, French and British claims over Palestine, as well as German interests who were by then allied with the, with the British, created a larger Palestinian entity with Jerusalem as its center. Now, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that the creation of the Belfort project in Britain uh, did not come suddenly. It came from a larger number of attempts by European powers to establish themselves in the Jerusalem district for the whole of Palestine and not only for the greater Jerusalem area and responded to by uh, Ottoman assertion of Jerusalem as the holy. Uh, of course, Jerusalem was Qudus Sharif and it was uh, in um, uh, Ottoman literature, administrative interest equal to, but now superior to the connection with the Hejaz. Uh, that of course collapsed completely uh, during the war, giving way to the uh, Franco-British occupation of Palestine and the uh, establishment and then the separation of uh, spheres of power between Britain and France and the establishment of British interest in Palestine uh, and the uh, uh, League of Nations mandate and the introduction of the Balfour Declaration. My point here is that um, the Ottomans were very keen at countering what became the Balfour Declaration before it was Balfour uh, through the assertion of claims by the Germans, the, uh, who were their allies, by the French, by the Italians, especially by the Russians uh, for uh, control over the Holy Land. And they did this by expanding the area of the Jerusalem all the way to the Sur boundaries in uh, southern Lebanon. So I will end my talk by saying that uh, the centrality of Jerusalem in the Ottoman discourse was asserted through uh, uh, travel literature, through uh, uh, religious literature, through establishment of pilgrimage routes, through the connection of the economic network between the port city of Jaffa and Jerusalem, and finally by military administrative means of creating one single entity of Palestine uh, in 1915, uh, which of course collapsed in, in, uh, in December of 1917. Thank you very much indeed, Salim. We're enormously relieved that you were able to join us uh, for that extremely rich history, but also because um, you are the Palestinian representative on this panel and we needed to hear your voice. Colleagues, we're running a little bit late now, partly because of the technical problems that we had, including my own, and I must apologize to everyone for that. Unfortunately, I lost the link at one stage and couldn't hear what was going on and had to rejoin. So I'm going to cut the discussion short because we're approaching the end of this panel. And I'm simply going to ask one question, which I would like everyone to answer briefly. It's the same question to all of you. And I would be grateful if we could take it in turns that you will simply ask 
uh, the question of what lessons can you draw from past attempts to share the city or to divide the city for today? Are any of those lessons from past experience of which Mick went through it in some detail still relevant today? Have you referred to the Clinton parameters, but he also expressed his own doubts about the viability or the prospects for a two-state solution? So is it useful for us to be able to try to draw any lessons from history for policymakers today? Perhaps, Avi, you could start. If you, uh, uh, Avi, please unmute yourself. You're, you're, you're still on mute, Avi. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so at the heart of uh, this conflict is a clash between two uh, uh, national movements. Uh, and um, these two national movements uh, have found it impossible to come to terms over Jerusalem. Um, nationalism is a very exclusive force, very powerful force, and a dividing force. It divides us into us and them. And that is the fundamental problem, not just in Jerusalem, but across uh, the board. So um, the lessons of history are two, which is the two national movements have never been able to come to a compromise over Jerusalem. And the second lesson is the great powers who have been unceasingly involved in this conflict have also had their own separate national interests and were unable to promote a joint solution to the conflict. That is why my conclusion is that all other attempts to resolve the Jerusalem problems have failed, and the only one is to share Jerusalem in the context of a binational state from the river to the sea. Thank you very much. Uh, let me turn to Menachem and hear his thoughts. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay, my, my answer is as following. Regardless which type of state we will have between Israel-Palestine, in Israel-Palestine, the city cannot be divided by a wall. The citizens of Jerusalem showed in the past and definitely need to co cooperate, encounter, collaborate, and share the urban space which they mix together and they, there is Im it's impossible to, to divide it. And it has to be a sh share between two equal partners. Uh, one should not rule over the other. So equality and sharing are the key concepts towards a much better and different future. You, you've expressed the philosophy of the Balfour project very well. Uh, let me turn to, to Mick. Hi, um, yeah, I follow on from what Menachem and Avi have said actually. Um, 
what one thing that is missing in a lot of the discussions about the future of this city is a recognition of the urban dynamics of the city. Mm. Uh, cities are a multi-ethnic heterogeneous mix uh, and to try and uh, to allow uh, or to, to create a system where one community dominates the other will lead to a ghettoization and marginalization of different elements and it, it, it kills the city. It, it deprives the city of its vitality and its, its uh, cosmopolitanism. And much of the discussions seem to neglect that and seem to sort of see the city as a map which, through which they can draw lines, um, which may correspond to some security or some sort of demographic uh, issue, but don't see the city as a whole, where the different parts of it and the different ethnicities and confessions and um, you know, uh, subgroups all contribute to making it a vital and lively place. So in the sense I'm following on from, from Menachi and Navi in that sense, there is something intrinsically heterogeneous about a city which isn't reflected in a lot of the discussions that we're having about the future of the city. Hmm. Yeah. Salim, you're a Jerusalemite um, and have studied the city most of your life. What lessons do you draw from the, from the past and what future do you see? Uh, it's very difficult to draw lessons when you are inside the grim reality of the city today. Uh, but I want to uh, project something from what is being said. First, I think the excessive sacralization of the city has been a major impediment to any kind of political reconciliation because uh, when religion rules, uh, then it becomes a... Uh, uh, an overwhelming ideological factor excluding the others because all, uh, especially in, in the Jewish claims and Islamic claims of the city, the idea of territorial division has been anathema. And that is why I think sacralization has been a negative factor in attempting to find a solution. The second uh, point is that the existing demography of the city, which was referred to by uh, the three speakers, or at least the part that I, I listened to, uh, is a de facto factor against uh, the existing form of apartheid that's being uh, run and cannot be squared with any kind of democratic control or any kind of political control that relies of, on disenfranchisement. So we need a solution that will address the demographic control in a representative factor without even looking at wider solutions of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the third point is that the earlier partition plan uh, condition of internationalization, uh, which failed, of course, in 1947 and after the 48 and 67 war, today is, it sounds very attractive way of intervention since neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians are able, giving the imbalance of forces, to resolve their condition. And therefore, it has weight uh, and possibilities of intervention that uh, uh, make it palatable, make it interesting to, to rethink 
uh, as uh, in, in, in the medium term uh, future uh, to look at internationalization. Thank you very much indeed, Salim, and to all of you for really a great